When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. As we do every week today, we need God's help if we're going to understand this part of the word well. So please, again, let's briefly pray and ask God to help us understand it rightly. Father, again, we pray that you would come and help us by your grace to know what it is you're trying to communicate to us through this story. Father, we pray that you would build our faith in the risen Jesus. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. If you've gotten to know me very well, uh, you probably know that I'm not a big camper Uh, I don't like camping. I'd much rather sleep inside than outside. I believe that human civilization is at such a point where no one should be forced to sleep outside, so I don't know why people do it for fun. Uh, I'm not a big camper. Part of the reason for that is because I had multiple traumatic experiences as a child, not to make this all about me on Easter, but i got to tell you this story. Um, When I was young, maybe fifth, sixth grade, I was camping with a group of friends and their families in the canyon right outside of the town I grew up in, and um, I was a... it was my maiden voyage as a camper, so to speak. Wasn't a big camping fan and um, didn't know what I was doing. And a couple of my friends decided as the day wore on that they wanted to take me snipe hunting. And let me tell you, I fell for it. I mean, hook, line, and sinker. I had no idea what a snipe was. I thought, you know, maybe it's a bird, some sort of squirrel. I'm still not sure. But I decided right then and there that I was going to catch a snipe. I was going to experience the life of victory. I was going to experience um, the adulation of the crowds, right? I was going to impress all of my friends by catching this strange creature that they described to me in vivid detail. And so we went out after the sun had set, and I had a bag, like a plastic bag, as if I could even catch a snipe if they existed with a plastic bag. But um, my cat-like reflexes would not have allowed that to happen. Um, So I, I sat there for... It has to be 30 minutes in the dark by the trees by myself waiting for the snipe to come while my friends came around behind me and just mocked me, you know, silently for a while before they screamed out, ha ha, we got you. And instead of experiencing the victory, the adoration of the crowds, the life that I expected, really what I got was death, right? The death of shame and embarrassment. And from that moment on, camping has caused anxiety to well up deep in my soul. Um, That kind of surprise or reversal of expectations must have been, to some degree anyways, what Jesus' followers were experiencing on these last days of his life. They had followed the Messiah for multiple years. They loved him. They believed in his message, at least as far as they understood it. And they expected him to be the victorious Messiah, the conquering king. They expected life. They expected 
the adoration of the crowds. They expected a conquest that was going to be glorious. But what did, what did they get instead, right? As we saw last week in our studies of Mark, they got shame. They got a crucified and beaten Messiah. They got a torturous crucifixion. So imagine, given their experience of the last 48 or so hours, the surprise of these three young women as they go to anoint the dead body of their rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, to honor him, but find instead a stone rolled away, an empty tomb, and an angel waiting for them. I mean, Mark tells us what their reaction was. It was shock. It was bewilderment. Literally, he says, trembling was their response. What is your response to this story? You know, Christians believe that it's true. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth is the hinge on which the whole story of Christianity turns. And so today on Easter, as we wrap up this story of Mark, I want us to just for a couple of minutes consider the story together. And it's very interesting. Last week, we talked about the death of Jesus, and in particular, its meaning and significance. We said that Jesus died to atone for the sins of humanity. Jesus died to bring us back to God and to rescue us out of the darkness. And Mark is similarly concerned with the meaning and significance here of the resurrection of Jesus. But if you look at the verses themselves, they're very interesting. It's really classic Mark. They're highly condensed. They seem to be going at warp speed. And I don't know if you noticed this, Tim read, the person that's conspicuously absent from this story. Jesus. I mean, Jesus isn't actually in Mark's account at all. It's just the angel speaking the message of Jesus to these three women. We have to rely on the other three gospels to find out what happens later. So Mark is doing something quite strange here. It's probably not the way that you or I would have concluded this story. As one commentator says, this is no way to run a resurrection, right? It's not the way that we would have done it. But I think that Mark is doing something very intentional in the way he ends the story, in the way he's arranging the narrative, As he's been doing really throughout this whole book, he is seeking to engage. He's seeking to engage his readers with the story and the message of Jesus. And that's something that I love about the Christian scriptures. As many have said, it's not so much that we read the Bible as the Bible reads us. And that's largely what's happening here this morning. Mark is out to engage For sure, everyone, but in particular, I think there's three types or groups of people that Mark in particular wants to engage in this story of the resurrection, in this story of the empty empty tomb. And so what we're going to do is go through three points here by looking at the three types of people through the story that Mark is trying to reach and speak to and engage. Maybe that's where you are this morning. First, he's speaking to the skeptics. Second, he's speaking to the guilty And then thirdly, he's speaking to the overly familiar. The skeptics, to the guilty, and to the overly familiar. Those are the three points. So let's see what Mark has to say to all of us and to each one of us. First, he's writing here to the skeptics. Hopefully one of the first things you noticed as these verses were read is that the entire account bears the marks of surprise. We've already talked about that a little bit, but it's very clear that no one in the story expects what happens here. These women in verse 1, they're going to anoint a dead body, right? To pay homage to their fallen Jesus. They have no expectation of life. They expect death. 
And so we read that Mark tells us again and again, verse 5, they're alarmed. Verse 8, they're astonished when they see and when they hear what has happened. Why is it, you think, that Mark chooses to emphasize so strongly in these few verses the surprise, the shock, even the fear of these people that first discovered that Jesus was no longer in the grave? Well, I think that what Mark is doing is doing what people in the modern day might do. Mark is focusing on the surprise of the people because he knows that his original readers would have had the same sort of response to the fact of the resurrection as people in our day do. The natural instinct for people when they hear that someone has been raised from the dead is to think, well, stuff like that simply doesn't happen. People don't just get up after they've been dead for three days and walk out of their tomb. You know, in our day, 2,000 years after these events took place, we tend to be guilty of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. That is, we tend to believe that because these ancient peoples uh, accepted the resurrection as fact just on the face of it, that they must have been more gullible or more naive than we modern, enlightened, educated people are. But that's actually not at all the case. People in the ancient world initially would have responded to news of a resurrection of a human from death in exactly the same way that we respond to it today when left to ourselves. Our response is, get out of here, right? I mean, there's no way. Things like that just don't happen. Give me a break. I mean, think about it. We've gone through Mark together for a number of months. And we know that Jesus repeatedly told his followers, I am going to die. And then I'm going to be raised again from the dead after three days. In chapter 8, in chapter 9, in chapter 10, constantly Jesus is talking about this. But his disciples just couldn't accept it. They couldn't understand it. They simply had no category for such a thing being possible. You see, they were skeptical, even of the possibility of a resurrection. Even those who are close to Jesus, right, for three plus years. Now, Mark is aware that that is people's natural reaction to news of a resurrection, whether they're ancient people or modern people. And so he doesn't hide the fact that the people who first discovered it were shocked and surprised. And very importantly, it's for that exact reason that Mark and other writers of the New Testament go to great lengths to show us as the readers that there are many eyewitnesses to these events. Mark is addressing the skeptics by saying, listen, I know you find this incredible and unbelievable, but these people all saw and experienced this. If you don't believe it, you can go ask them. That's basically what he's saying to the original readers. That's why if you notice here at the very end, all these proper names are given by Mark. Much more relatively than the rest of the gospel, especially these three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. They're mentioned as being there to witness the actual death of Jesus. In 1547, Mary and Mary are there to witness where Jesus is buried. And then in 161, it's the same three women that witness that the tomb is empty and that Jesus is no longer there. What Mark is doing is saying that these women witnessed the death of Jesus. They saw it all. They saw him die. They saw him get buried. And then they saw that he was not in the tomb anymore. And furthermore, their testimony corroborates. And further, other parts of the New Testament tell us that hundreds of people witnessed visibly the resurrected 
Jesus. And no one was ever able to find the body. Believe me, they looked, both the Jews and the Romans. And it's also very unlikely that these women and all the other eyewitnesses would have concocted this elaborate story, would have made this story up and made sure that all of their arguments and testimony were in full agreement so that they could sort of get this religious movement off the ground. That's super unlikely. It's unlikely that they could have even pulled that off to begin with, but it's especially unlikely because in a few decades, most of these people are going to be killed because they believe that Jesus died and was raised again from the dead. It's highly unlikely that people would be willing to die for what they knew to be a falsehood. Listen, if you're going to be intellectually honest, which I hope you're willing to be, no matter where you are in faith or in your view of Christianity this morning, then I hope that you can understand or at least be willing to consider the truth that the resurrection of Jesus is one of the best attested events in history. Now, listen, of course, I'm not suggesting here that I, by making this argument or any other person, can force you to believe that these things are true. No one can force faith on you. No one can force you to believe that Jesus is raised from the dead. You know, anyone is perfectly willing and able to say, you know what? I don't have a better explanation for how Christianity got started and how this man left this tomb, but dead people just don't raise from the dead. So that can't possibly be true. I mean, that might be your response. And that's a, that's a logical conclusion. Uh, Let me just ask you this. In fact, let me just put it this way. Here's what, um, One New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright says, he writes this, the trouble is, of course, that believing that Jesus was raised from the dead involves, at the very least, suspending judgment on matters normally regarded as fixed and unalterable. Or, to put it more positively, it requires that we exchange a worldview which says that such things can't happen for one which embraces the notion of a creator God making himself known in Jesus. Of course, faith cannot be forced upon any one of us, but unfaith can be challenged. And I believe that Mark, to a great extent, is trying to do that here, and the whole New Testament is trying to do this here. And really, I would like you to ask yourself this question. Can you allow the story to challenge your natural bent towards skepticism, if that's where you find yourself today? Or maybe to put it another way, can you not assume That your own views on such things are so fixed and unalterable that no actual evidence can induce a change of mind. U2's lead singer, Bono, is uh, well known to often talk about Christianity. And this week I was studying for the sermon and I came across this interview that he did in the Guardian London newspaper a number of years ago where they ended up talking about matters of faith. And the interviewer was quite skeptical of Christianity as might not surprise any of us. And at one point, Bono responds with this. And I think I actually have the quote. You want it? There we go. It's already up. Thank you. Um, here's what Bono said to the interviewer. Either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. This man was strapping himself to a bomb and had king of the Jews on his head. And as they were putting him up on the cross, was going, okay, martyrdom, here we go. Bring on the pain. I can take it. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half of the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. You know, I hope that you would at least consider the idea this morning. If you are coming from a place of skepticism, which I can totally relate to, 
that perhaps the best explanation for these events is that they actually happened. So Mark is definitely concerned to engage those who are skeptical by talking about the facts of the resurrection, the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. But he's also concerned to tell us about the meaning and the significance of the resurrection. So he speaks not only to the skeptics, but secondly, he speaks to the guilty, to the guilty. Listen to the story again. This angelic messenger gives orders via Jesus, right? Jesus, via the messenger, gives orders to these three women. And in 16.7, we read that Jesus has told them, the disciples, that is, to go to Galilee, and he will meet them there just as he told them. He told them that in chapter 14, verse 28, by the way. So the angel gives the orders, go tell the disciples this. And here, very importantly, we see, that this is a story of grace. This is a story of mercy. Listen, the message of the resurrection of Jesus exists to highlight the love and forgiveness of Jesus. How so? Well, remember, if you've been with us, remember what the disciples have done, right? On Friday, a couple of days prior to these events, at the beginning of this monumental weekend in human history, all of the disciples bailed on Jesus in his hour of need. Every one of them fled. They saved their own skin. They turned their backs on him. And throughout the entire story of Mark, these disciples have not recognized Jesus for who he really is. They've been hard-hearted. They've been dim-witted, to say the least. They've been slow to understand. They're lacking in mercy. They're not compassionate towards the people that Jesus has compassion for. They're presented as jealous and envious and even malicious at times. They're arrogant and ambitious. And look who's specifically named there in verse 7. Did you catch that? Go tell his disciples and who? Peter. And Peter, you know, remember Peter has been sort of the major screw up of the disciples screw ups. He, in a fit of rage, cursed Jesus's name and claimed that he never knew him, that he wants nothing to do with him. And Mark has told us that this caused Peter to break down and weep in shame and fear and guilt. Now, put yourself in Peter's shoes a couple of days later just as an experiment in the imagination. You're still covered in shame. You're off in a corner alone in the upper room, hiding from the authorities in despair, along with the other 10 disciples. Judas is long gone after he betrayed Jesus. And then these three women burst in through the door and announce with astonishment and fear that the tomb is empty. And that the angel has appeared and told them to get up and go and meet with Jesus in Galilee, just like he said. Jesus is alive, they say. Jesus has been raised from the dead, just like he told us he would be. And the other disciples, you know, they're trying to come to terms with it. And they decide to go out to Galilee and meet him. Imagine you're Peter. Ladies, did he say anything about me? He mentioned my name? Imagine you're Peter. And the ladies look at you and say, yeah, he asked for you specifically, Peter. What's your immediate response? Oh, man. (laughs) Right? He's going to be ticked. 
You know, if we're Jesus, we say, and you tell Peter to get his sorry, yellow, no good keister right here pronto so that I can give him a tongue lashing. That's exactly what Peter expects. Peter's going to say, you know what, guys? I'm out. This discipleship thing, it's not for me anymore. You guys go ahead without me. But the ladies say, no, no, Jesus wants you to come. He wants you to meet him. And we know from other parts of the scripture that it's not so that Jesus can shame him and condemn him. No, Jesus asks for Peter and for all the disciples so that they can know that his love for them is undying and unconquerable. He wants Peter to know that because of his resurrection, because he has overcome death, he has also overcome Peter's guilt, Peter's shame, Peter's failure. Grace abounds here to guilty disciples. Grace abounds here to guilty Peter, to Jesus-denying, backstabbing Peter. Grace always makes a way. Jesus is saying to Peter, and Jesus is saying to you this morning, Peter, I have loving plans for you still. Peter, I died and was raised again to secure your forgiveness. That is how much I cherish you, Peter. You are coming to Galilee too. What a message. Listen, what a message for those of us who have had monumental screw-ups. What a message to those of us who have been exposed as failures and are being chased by guilt unstoppably. God says, I still have loving plans for you. That's what the resurrection means. You see, the resurrection assures us that no matter your past failures, no matter your past regrets, that there is mercy. There is mercy to be found with God. Peter finds that out. And we must find that out too if we're going to really experience the transformation that the gospel offers. Listen, it's only in the black backdrop of our most abysmal failures that the white hot love of God is most evidently and beautifully seen. Now that's not the way the world works. The great author Madeline Lee says this, we are suspicious of grace We are afraid of the very lavishness of the gift. I think that's true. You know, you might be here this morning and you might think, I know how religion works. Here's how religion works. You do a few things, you give a little bit of money, you donate a a little bit of time, and God will then bestow you some favors later on down the line. And hopefully, at the end, when you die, you'll have over 50% favors with God so that you can end up with the big guy upstairs forever. Well, that is religion, but that's not this. That is religion, but that's not the gospel. It's not Christianity. Christianity is this. God favors you. God loves you. God takes your failures and guilt and pays for them himself to show you the great depth of his rich grace, to show you mercy overflowing to the undeserving. You know, We don't like to admit that we are all moral and spiritual failures. We don't like to admit that. But listen, that's real authenticity. When you can come to a place where you can admit your own guilt, 
when you can admit your own need. And then when you see who you really are, the resurrection begins to matter. Because the resurrection is God saying, paid in full over all of your failures, over all of your shortcomings, over all of your rebellion, over all of your selfishness, over all of your greed and anger and hatred and vengeful hearts. Over all of it, the resurrection means that God in Jesus is still for you. He will not be your enemy. If you will trust that Jesus has done this for you, no, he is your friend. He is your father. He openly welcomes and invites you home free of charge. That's what the resurrection means. If you can take the story to that point in your life, it will bring, it will bring a wholeness and a freedom that you have never before known. When you open yourself up as you really are in all of your failures, just like Peter did, in all of your fears, then the risen Christ will be so vividly apparent to you, not in his judgment, but in his love, that your life will be changed. It's available for you all today. It's the message of the gospel. It's the message of the resurrection. Mark, the Holy Spirit through Mark is speaking to the skeptics. He's speaking to the guilty. Last, okay, quick. He's speaking to the overly familiar. This is a message to the overly familiar. Look in verse 8, last verse of the gospel. We'll talk about that longer ending another time. This is the last verse, trust me. How does the gospel end? Uh, very abrupt, right? And this is classic Mark. These women walk off, run away with fear and trembling. Ecstasy is the literal word there. Ecstasy and astonishment fill them. Terror seizes them. What's going on here? None of us would have ended it like this, right, if we're writing the story. I think part of what Mark is doing is communicating to those of us who have lost all sense of astonishment with God. He wants to speak to those of us who have lost all sense of astonishment at the fact of the resurrection. He's speaking to those of us who've been around church for a while and, frankly, are overly familiar with the story. And Mark is trying to remind us that when a person really encounters the resurrected God, there is no room for the lukewarm. There's no sense in which we can just consider this sort of ho-hum, normal, run-of-the-mill Christian stuff. A true encounter with the resurrected Jesus brings always astonishment. It brings trembling. It brings wonder. What's happening here is that God is bringing the future world into the present world through one person, Jesus. God is establishing a new kingdom. He is declaring a revolution on the old order against the power and forces of this fallen world. This is a story that really does change everything. This is a story that is radical. It's a story that should invoke in each of us devotion and wonder and ecstasy. Now, this is not some sweet little story where nice, cute little Jesus comes out of the tomb. And, you know, there's Easter bunnies all around. Two thumbs up from Jesus. This is not hallmark Christianity. This is radical revolutionary, world-shattering, kingdom-coming, God-induced onslaught against the darkness and corruption and brokenness of the world. 
So the, the way that Mark is engaging us is by saying, listen, you can reject this. You can go all in with this, but there's no middle ground for people if they really understand the news. You cannot just take the resurrection as familiar, as indifferent, as regular. One of my favorite authors, Marilyn Robinson, in her book Home, writes this. It is possible to know the great truths without feeling the truth of them. Did you come here this morning expecting to encounter death and resurrection? <laughs> or did you just show up for a bit before Easter lunch? It's fine to eat lunch, by the way. Here's the truth. If the resurrection is true, listen, if the resurrection is true, then you have lost control of your life. I mean, you really never had it to begin with. But the illusion of control is also now gone. You know, ironically, if you believe in the resurrection, then you are inviting death into your life. Death of your control. Death of your selfishness. Death of your grudges. Death of your desires to be in charge. Death to the old way of living. But in the midst of this death, in the midst of laying yourself down, you get the resurrection life of Jesus of Nazareth. And in the resurrection, you get hope. You get the rest that you've always wanted, but you've never been able to find. Can you see that? I'm convinced that too many of us use Christianity to stay in control. The resurrection actually reverses that. If you really get Christianity, if you really believe that these things happened and that they're significant, you lose control. And that's actually the best thing that could ever happen. When you can embrace by faith the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection, then you can understand that the shadows of life, the darkness of life is but a momentary blip on the eternal radar of God. And you can see, twinkling off in the distance, a certain and sure hope. Jesus' new life after death proves that. At the end of Lord of the Rings, um, Samwise Gamgee is laying down at the foot of Mount Doom, almost hopeless, wondering if he's ever going to make it. Darkness and evil seem to be overwhelming. And then Tolkien writes this, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land, a hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. And so putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. The rest that you long for but have never been able to find is available for you freely in the news that Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let's pray.